August 24th, 2006, might be the most scandalous day in the history of popular science. That was the day the International Astronomical Union ended a decades-long debate. In order for an object to be a planet, it must meet three criteria. It must be in orbit around the sun, it must have enough gravity to result in a nearly spherical shape, and it must have cleared its neighborhood of orbital debris. That's all well and good, except, by this new definition, Pluto could no longer be considered a planet. Caltech astronomer Mike Brown pulled no punches when breaking the news. There are finally, officially, eight planets in the solar system, he said. Pluto is dead. That might be just a touch dramatic. Pluto isn't exactly dead. Rather, it became the first of a new class of objects. The dwarf planets. These are bodies that fall just short of the bar for planetary status. That is, they have not cleared their neighborhood. Much of the astronomy community was relieved by the move, because if Pluto were a planet, dozens of recently discovered Pluto-like objects would also have to be classified as planets. But the general public didn't care how well-reasoned this decision was. This was scandalous! Those poindexters over at NASA were bullying plucky little Pluto out of the planet club. Pluto didn't do anything wrong. What would my very educated mother just serve us nine of now? Such an unthinkable act of astronomical humiliation was unprecedented. Except, well, it wasn't unprecedented. Ceres is the largest object in the asteroid belt. It's much smaller than Earth's moon, but still massive, and satisfyingly spherical. Upon its discovery on the first day of the 19th century, people counted it among the solar system's planets. The smallest planet, perhaps, but a planet nonetheless. The following year, when Pallas was discovered, it too was added to the roster of planets. In 1804, they were joined by Juno, and then Vesta, and Astraea, Iris, Flora, Hygieia. By 1851, it was clear that a distinction needed to be drawn between these minor curiosities and the more significant planets. So these smaller bodies became known as asteroids, including Ceres, the first asteroid that was discovered. It was practically the same thing that would happen to Pluto 150 years later. Formerly one of the few major objects in our solar neighborhood, Ceres was now one among hundreds, something less valuable. But there is something the largest asteroid still shares with the real planets. Only two years after Giuseppe Piazzi discovered Ceres, Berzelius and friends discovered a new chemical element here on Earth. 
they named the element Cerium, in honor of the landmark astronomical discovery, placing it in the company of other elements named after planets, like Mercury, Tellurium, and Neptunium. Regardless of what the stargazers behind their telescopes had to say, Ceres had undeniably secured its place in chemistry's official record of noteworthy entities. And that is a distinction that no one is going to take away. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're shedding a little light on Cerium. In the year 1803, Cerium became the first rare earth metal to be discovered. That was always the way it was likely to go down, since cerium is also, by far, the most abundant of the rare earth metals. In fact, it's so abundant that it was discovered twice in that year. Once in Sweden by Jan Jakob Berzelius and Wilhelm von Heisinger, and coincidentally around the same time by Martin Heinrich Klaproth in Germany. It was yet another case, as we've highlighted before, of multiple discovery. Sometimes, in the scientific realm, the light bulb goes off for more than one person at the same time. That imagery of a light bulb illustrating an epiphany is, well, brilliant. Light is a pretty universal symbol of knowledge, from Buddhism to Plato's Republic. But unlike the sun, a light bulb provides the full power of its illumination immediately, and is itself one of humanity's bright ideas. In fact, a lot of what we said back in Cesium's episode about timekeeping devices goes hand in hand with advances in artificial lighting that cropped up around the same time. At least as revolutionary as the electric bulb was gaslight. While lamps have been around for tens of thousands of years, they were strictly personal technology, providing just enough light to walk to the bedroom or study a manuscript. It wasn't until 1792 that city streets could be brightly and reliably lit at night, when William Murdoch installed pipes carrying coal gas to lamps all over his house and the foundry, where he happened to be employed by legendary Scottish scientist James Watt. Now, workers could labor in factories around the newly created clock, no matter whether it was day or night. The streets after sunset were no longer the sole domain of criminals. And coal gas provided the first type of another new technology. Networks. Before the railroad and the telegraph, homes and streets became physically linked by a series of pipes carrying the incandescent fuel governing the new social rhythms. And a vital aspect of home life fell under the direct control of either the local government or a corporate monopoly. Karl Auer von Welsbach was a disciple of none other than Robert Bunsen, 
held in such high esteem that he was awarded his PhD without even submitting a thesis. Von Welsbach improved upon the gas lamp by hanging within the flame a mesh made of 99 parts thorium to one part cerium. He found that this mixture provides a lot of light in the visible spectrum, whereas existing technologies inefficiently emitted energy as invisible infrared light. Combining this superior technology with a dramatic flair for salesmanship, von Welsbach became wildly successful, selling over 300 million such lamps by 1913. He accumulated enough wealth to build his own castle, complete with a private chemistry lab. Not one to rest on his laurels, he continued advancing the technology of light, becoming one of the dozens of scientists who ensured the practical and commercial success of the electric bulb that would eventually render his prior invention obsolete. Thomas Edison most notoriously won the battle for publicity in that field, but von Welsbach earned more exclusive success with yet another cerium-based technology. Flint, of the kind used in cigarette lighters. At least, it's commonly called flint, but that's something of a misnomer. After all, nobody invented real flint. Some of the earliest humans on Earth found it on the ground and used it to start fires. True flint is a type of quartz, a mineral composed of silicon and oxygen. What von Welsbach invented was a mixture of iron and cerium that could generate extremely hot sparks, even when wet, and was very cheap to produce. This, rather than his version of the light bulb or the gas mantle, would be Karl Auer von Welsbach's most enduring contribution to chemistry. It was also this invention, a few decades later, that allowed one talented chemist to endure. We last mentioned Primo Levi way back in episode 30, because he suggested that zinc is a boring element. There's much more to his story, though. Levy was a shy and frequently ill boy, often bullied for being Jewish. He came of age under Benito Mussolini's fascist Italy, and in 1944, he was shoved in a cattle car and sent to Auschwitz. There, he had the debatably good fortune to be conscripted to work as a chemical engineer in a synthetic rubber factory. Access to a laboratory allowed him to perform experiments in survival. He tried eating burnt cotton and drinking glycerin, but found that the raw calories they provided were not worth the side effects induced. He had more success with a sludge made of paraffin that, quote, really took the edge off his hunger. But it was an unlabeled jar of small, gray, metallic sticks that proved most useful to Levy, 
after a bit of study, he and a friend deduced that these were sticks of ferrocerium, the same compound von Welsbach used as his so-called flint. Other prisoners in the camp could use this material in the creation of contraband cigarette lighters, a valuable commodity. So, in the chaos caused one day by an air raid siren, Levy swiftly pocketed all 40 sticks of cerium. It was enough to purchase two months of bread, two months of life, for both him and his accomplice. That made all the difference, because two months later, the Russian army finally arrived and liberated Auschwitz. Familiarity with the behavior of this one obscure element saved Levy's life, and allowed him to go on to share that knowledge with millions of students of chemistry, now including you among their number. You will likely not make much headway in your search for cerium if you just poke around unlabeled jars in the nearest chem lab, but of course, you don't need to. Many lighters continue to use Karl Auer von Welsbach's ferrocerium flint to this day. Just make sure it's not one of those lighters that generates a little electrical spark instead. Ironically, those flintless lighters actually use a bit of quartz to generate that spark. So they're closer in origin to true flint than the stuff we're looking for. You might already have a little cerium in your home if you have one of those fancy self-cleaning ovens. The interior walls of those appliances are usually coated in cerium oxide, which helps any food particles easily turn to ash. You do still need to wipe those ashes up, though, so it's not exactly self-cleaning. Yet, for all of Element 58's pyrophoric tendencies, it has one quality that seems quite contradictory. A topical solution of cerium nitrate can help soothe severe burns. You could almost believe the element has a sense of humor. And thank goodness. After all, we wouldn't want to take things too seriously. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. To learn how series became part of a complete breakfast, visit episodictable.com slash C-E. I'm especially grateful to those of you who have taken the time to send a kind email or write a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It's incredibly rewarding to hear what so many of you think of the show, and every rating, review, and recommendation you make helps more people discover the show. Thank you. Next time, we'll get knocked out of the spelling bee with Preciodymium. Until then, this is T.R. Appleton. Reminding you, one fire drives out one fire, one nail, one nail, 
Rights by rights falter, strengths by strengths do fail.